Welcome to the Beer Driven Devs podcast, where your hosts, Matt Goldman and Liam Elliott, share their experiences and passion for technology, software, and of course, beer. So be sure to grab yourselves a cold one and join them for this week's chat. Good evening, Matt. How are you doing this week? Hey, Liam. Good, good. How are you? Yeah, doing really well. Um, had a big one last night. Um, lots of beers. I'm not going to be doing anything tonight. I'm on the waters. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So I'm to, I'll put it out there now. I'm on the waters. There's no beers for me yeah, tonight. Fair enough. I'm actually on a non-alcoholic beer myself. And, it, you know, for a, a podcast called The Beer Driven Devs, I'm not doing that well. I keep drinking these alcohol-free <laughs> beers and I really should make an effort. Now, in my defense, I also had a big one, not last night. It was on Friday night. You probably saw something I posted on Friday. Yeah, I was, was going to bring that one up a bit later. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, I ha- we can talk about that later, but I, I had a few drinks on Friday. Yep. And yeah, so I'm taking it a bit easy on the alcohol now. Also, we spoke last week about health, and I'm, I think certainly probably for the next three months, I need to be very conscious of my alcohol yep. intake just to sort of help my liver get back on track, and, and mm-hmm. then I can be a bit more relaxed. So yeah, I'm, I'm keeping my alcohol consumption to a minimum at the moment, but not giving it up. Yeah, okay. So yeah, on that, you know, we're, what, four episodes in? I think this is number four already which has gone so yeah. quick. I thought this week, maybe it's a bit of time to introduce ourselves to the listeners, talking a bit more about ourselves, our history, and pretty much how we got here today and how we what resulted in this podcast. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Did you want to jump in and get started, Matt? Yeah, sure. Well, look, I do have a tendency to ramble and waffle. And given um, an open-ended introduction like that, I'll uh, I'll go all the way back and, you know, start with in the beginning, God but created if, the heavens and the if earth. If you get too carried away, I'm going to have to um, start to wind you up. And call last orders. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, no, I won't go back that far. So yeah, I mentioned earlier about something I posted on Friday. Mm. And I told a story in that that covered part of this story that I'm going to tell now. And I'll, I'll repeat part of that here. When I was young, in my late teens, in the UK, you can finish school when you're 16 or you can stay on until mm-hmm. you're 18. And I left at 16 because I wanted to go and do something different. So in the UK, you can complete your 16 to 18 education in a college. College in the UK is 16 to 18 and a university is senior. It's what they call further education and higher education. That's much um, the So same a college and university are different. Sorry? Much the same here in Australia. Or in New South Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I, I had no idea what I wanted to do when I finished school other than get the heck out of school. I, I hated school. It wasn't a period of my life that I enjoyed for various reasons, but I really disliked it and I and I couldn't wait to get out of school, which was a shame because I think, uh, you know, I do enjoy education and I do enjoy learning. And if I'd have had a different attitude back then, I probably could have approached it differently. But I left school to go and do something different, which I didn't pursue, which would become a theme. And a long story short, I'll cut down the next sort of four years where I've floundered around, started a couple of different education options that I didn't finish, started a whole bunch of different jobs, which I hated. And after sort of four or four so years after school, I decided to go to university. I was determined to go into university, not because I had an ambition or a career plan, but I had an absolute solid goal that I was not going to work in retail, hospitality or call centers anymore. <laughs> Have you ever done those things? Not hospitality, retail. I packed shelves at Woolies while I was studying at one point. I At high school, I was down at Macca's. Um, after yeah. school but that's pretty much my extent there in retail yeah. 
Yeah. So you've got some understanding of it. To be fair, hospitality and retail were not the worst jobs in the world. I don't didn't enjoy them as much as what I enjoy now. But working in a call center, I really hated. And no disrespect to anyone that worked in a call center. But some of these were high pressure sales, you know, basically non-existent commission. Yet the whole position is is sold to you on the basis of commission, which you're never going to actually earn. Some of them are, are downright mm-hmm. horrible in, in terms of pressure that they put on you and the way that they want you to treat the people that you're calling and often cold calling. Anyway, I don't want to talk about that. What I want to talk about is how I ended up here. So I uh, went and took a course that's called uh, an access course. And what th- this is yep. a course in MS Access. Uh, it's access to higher education. And what that means is that if you're a mature student and a mature student is defined as over 21, you haven't completed mm-hmm. your secondary education. So you left at 16 rather than 18. You can take this course, which makes you eligible to go to university. So I went and took this course. I applied for four universities. I applied for computer science at three universities, including one mm-hmm. very prestigious one in the UK. And I applied for an outlier, which was a degree in science and science fiction, uh, just because I saw it on the list and thought that sounds interesting. So uh, I'll go and do that. Now, the university that I applied to for this science and science fiction course invited me to come along for an interview. And this was uh, just outside Cardiff in Wales. Mm -hmm. So I went down, stayed for the weekend, had this interview and was accepted. I didn't get invited for interviews for any of the other universities. They all just sent me conditional acceptance on the condition of completing this course. And I, I I had a conundrum at this point because I kind of had an affinity for computers all throughout my teenage years and thought, oh, I should probably go and do computer science. And, you know, this is probably what I should do as a career. To be honest, I didn't want to at the time. And and I didn't want to for a long time, actually, even though I kind of had, you know, making games as a hobby and various other things IT related were were hobbies of mine. But it wasn't something I wanted to do as a career because I didn't see it as creative and I wanted to do something creative. Mm -hmm. So I had this conundrum and I thought, well, the science fiction degree sounds amazing, but it's not going to get me a job. and, And not a kind of job that, you know, it's not going to set me up for a career the way that a degree in computer science will. So I contacted the university and said, what if I change this to a combined degree where I do the science fiction and the computer science? And they're like, yep, yeah, no worries. So we switched up and then I decided to go to that university and I got there and within the first week and I had to pick all my classes. That was pretty much it. I looked at the, the schedule and the classes available for this degree in science and science fiction, which I'll, I'll talk more about in a minute because it's not quite what it sounds like. And I looked at the computer science classes that I had to pick from. And it wasn't that I didn't want to do the comp sci ones. It was that I could not make myself cut any of the, the science and science fiction ones. Yep. So I was struggling with this for a bit. And then the final, na- final nail in the coffin was when I found out that my degree title wouldn't be combined science and science fiction and computer science. It would be a degree in combined studies. Yeah. And I just thought, well, that is just pointless. Yeah. So I backflipped and took up the, the science and science fiction degree full time. And uh, this sounds like it may not be relevant, uh, but it is. And I'll get to why. This course was was great and I absolutely loved every aspect of it. And without going into too much details, the actual content of the degree was history and philosophy of science, but examined through the lens of science fiction and the history of science and development of science fiction and science communication. Wow. And also, you know, using a lot of science fiction as kind of examples for that. And yeah, it was a re- fantastic degree. Oh, I absolutely really loved it. interesting. That sounds like it'd be such an interesting set of studies. I can't even begin to tell you how much it was. It was fantastic and I loved it. And if you want to do an episode on it where I talk about it in more deck yeah. i'd be absolutely delighted to let's look, let's put that one on the uh, backlog let's add it let's add it to the list yeah 
So I finished up this degree and my best friend, uh, his name was Mike and his partner, Lisa, they were both teachers and they were saying to me, you know, what are you going to do when you finish uni? And I, and I really didn't know. I had an opportunity to take up some postgraduate study, which I did. And that didn't go fully the way that I wanted to, because it was something that I was hoping to get funded by the university and it got partially funded, but not enough for me to continue doing it. So I ended up with a postgraduate certificate. And then I thought, well, you know, they're pushing me to do this teacher training. So I signed up for this teacher training course, went and did that and I got partway through it and I just decided that I couldn't do it and the reason I decided I couldn't do it was not because I hated it or you know didn't love it but well it was because I didn't love it basically I felt that there are a lot of teachers in the system in the UK and probably elsewhere that are there because they did what I had done they'd completed an undergraduate degree didn't really know what else to do so took up teaching as a career and my feeling is that when you're a pupil in school the teachers that you're going to learn the best from and the teachers that are going to inspire you the most are the ones that are truly passionate, the ones that are there because they absolutely love it, either their subject or providing an education to the next generation or both. And I didn't have that passion. I didn't have that drive. Mm -hmm. And I morally could not bring myself to continue that career path on that basis. So I packed that in and was back to almost where I started before university. I was working in a call center yep. and this was a, a really, really terrible one. I, I am actually not allowed to talk about the details of it for various reasons, but it was, it was a really horrible experience. And I fortunately, I wasn't there for long. I ended up applying for another job at a company called Ecotricity in the UK. And they yeah. seem really cool. They do sort of uh, green electricity. They do wind turbines. And so they do both retail and wholesale and generation and everything. A really cool company. I applied for an admin job that they'd been advertising. Uh, again, just, you know, a job, not a career. Yep. And the recruiter, the HR lady at this company called me up and said, I've received your application and I'm about to post an ad for a role in our IT department which I haven't posted yet, but I'm looking at your CV and I think that Damien, who's the manager there, would be really, really interested. Are you happy for me to pass it along to him? And I was, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Why not? So I went along to this interview and it was a really interesting experience. So I was interviewed by Damien and another guy called Jason. Uh, Damien was the manager of this IT department and Jason worked there and they were playing a bit of good cop, bad cop. Um, yeah. Jason was, was basically there to intimidate me. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he didn't smile. He glared at me. Yeah, not his personality. He was an absolutely great guy. And, you know, we got on really well together, but it was the interview technique was quite funny. So they're asking me all these questions. And this was not not development, by the way, this was IT support infrastructure, mm -hmm. help desk, that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, Jason's, you know, posed me a couple of technical questions. And, you know, again, I, I hadn't had an IT job before. I had worked, I actually had worked as a hardware technician before. Yeah. Um, in retail <laughs> um, and, and a bit of support that goes along with that. But I, I hadn't had, you know, a corporate or enterprise IT job. So I'm, I'm there in my interview doing my best to, you know, talk to these guys and you know, explain to them, you know, what knowledge I have and what capability I have and where I can start and, you know, how quick I can learn mm -hmm. and all this sort of stuff. And the whole time Damien's like, yeah, 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 whatever. Tell me more about this degree. <laughs> so as it yeah. happened, by a strange twist of fate, that degree, which wasn't a computer science degree, got me my first IT job. Interesting. Wow. That sounds cool. So, yeah. yeah, so, I mean, you've said, okay, that was a yeah. um, an IT, an admin, IT admin, the structure side of things. Yeah. These days, as the podcast says, you're a, you're a dev. Yeah. And when right. I met you, what was it? Just I can't remember now, about four years ago, I think we met four years ago, working for the same company. You, you were in a dev role I, then. I was. 
I was, but I hadn't been before. So no, I was going to say, so do you want to tell us about sort of that transition and what made you want to give up the administration side and move toward the dev side? Yeah, well, do you remember when I said earlier that I didn't initially not wanted a career in IT because it wasn't something that I saw as creative? Yep. Well, I have been, you know, writing code for upwards of 25 years, yeah. longer, um, you know, but not professionally. You know, I've been writing games. I've been writing small programs at home to, to solve my homework for me. Actually, yep. I did that and I submitted the code in school um, for one of my maths assignments. That was fun. <laughs> and that was that was valid. I was allowed to do that. You know, and then, and then when I moved into this IT role, I had a couple of opportunities to to build some small applications for internal use in this company there. One was um, a PHP app, mm. which was you know, good fun. Now, in, in this particular role, I was there for just under three years, and it, it was a real baptism of fire. And the IT department went through a lot of change very quickly. And I went from my first ever job in IT to running the department in maybe a year. Wow. Yeah, maybe a year and a half. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, so by the time I left, I feel like I had grown a lot professionally, like my technical capability, uh, you know, on the infrastructure side had gone way beyond, I think it was certainly way beyond what I'd started with. And I, you know, I'd gained management skills and, and, you know, I'd gained architecture skills, project management, all this kind of stuff. And then through a set of circumstances, I can't really call it a redundancy because it wasn't, but it was a complicated scenario that I, I'm mm. not going to go into now, but, but that job ended. And I, at this point was looking for what to do next. This was was in September 2009. Do you remember what else was happening September 2009? That was the GFC, wasn't it? It was the GFC. Yeah, yeah. So I was looking around and there was not much work. I think I applied for I applied for a few jobs, but I just wasn't even finding anything that was interesting. And I ended up applying for two and maybe getting offered one and I just really, really didn't want to do it. Mm -hmm. So I thought to myself, I'd had a bit of a uh, a severance, you could call it, from this this job. And I was 28, 29 at the time. And the working holiday visa here for Australia at the time had a cap of 30. And I, I'd been here for a holiday once when I was 14 or 15. And I'd always, always wanted to come back. And then life happened, uni happened, all the other stuff around that. And I never did. And I just thought, well, I'm just going to do it. So November 2009, I came here for a holiday mm -hmm. and uh, I'm still here. It's the longest holiday ever. And I found the same situation here. It was the GFC. There was just, mm -hmm. you know, nobody hiring. Plus what I learned at the time, which, it, you know, I, I didn't know then, was that recruitment shuts down in, you know, in Sydney, basically mm -hmm. November through february or march yep. so i i just did the tourist thing for a bit and then i ended up getting a temp job uh, at kpmg in, in sydney doing an soe rollout and then i got offered another job after that with a company in sydney that they're not around anymore they've been bought out by another company doing infrastructure and help desk and all the other stuff i'd been doing before but with sponsorship and i, and I hadn't asked for that it was just a recruiter who'd been working with who, who said i've got this company they're a great company they've got a fantastic reputation and they like to sponsor people are you interested in being sponsored and I just thought, yeah, absolutely. You know, it was uh, very lucky, the right place, yeah. right time. I certainly hadn't come with the intention of looking for sponsorship or permanent residence or citizenship or, or anything like that. Just right place, right time, I guess. And I interviewed with this company and uh, funnily enough, got promoted before I even started for, <laughs> for various reasons that I won't go into. So I uh, I started off at this company with sponsorship as a, as a team leader for this on-site team for one of their clients. And I guess I will gloss over the next 10 years, but over the, the 10 years after that, I ended up doing various roles with these guys, infrastructure support roles, solution architect, but you know, infrastructure projects, not code mm -hmm. management consulting. So I ended up doing work for them doing uh, you know security policies and, and various other IT management policies mm -hmm. for, 
for various clients across various sectors. But I, I worked a lot with the original client the most. They were a hospital and they went through a period of change. They ended up hiring an infrastructure manager, which I applied for and then went to work for them. And I was there for about four years, four and a half years yep. in this infrastructure manager role and then eventually IT director at this hospital. Now, all through this 10 years, I discovered firstly a passion for PowerShell. I <laughs> loved automating all the work that I was doing. Yep. I loved writing the code and then eventually started playing more with .NET. I mean, I've been playing with .NET on the side, but started bringing it into work and, and I built a couple of apps. But one of the issues we had at this hospital was that we had an on-call service because they're there overnight, but it became quite expensive for them to call the on-call person just because someone had forgotten a password. Yeah. So we, we set up the right permissions for, for the after-hours manager of the hospital to be able to do this, but then the tooling was quite hard. So I just wrote a very basic WPF desktop app that let them search for someone, reset their password, enable their account, and yeah, transfer yeah. them to the right department. And I, I loved doing that. And, and you know, I ended up writing some more apps. And then it was in the final year that I was there, the, the one that really sealed it for me was we had this patient in, in ICU. And she was, I think she was an MND patient, motor neurone disease. Mm -hmm. And she was almost completely immobile and she was about to be nonverbal. She was there for, for basically surgery, I think on her larynx, which was causing her problems. So she had this device that, that had been provided to her for this company that was basically strapped to her arm and it would pick up nerve pulses in her arm mm. um, and then communicate with an app on her phone. Wow. And she could use this for sending messages and speaking and all that sort of stuff. Amazing. But what she couldn't do was press the nurse call button on her bed. So every bed had a, a button that you know, a patient can press mm. and that lights up a light, makes the thing go ding. And we had these wireless Cisco phones, IP phones that every nurse had and, and it would send an alert to the phone saying patient in bed three, yeah. nurse call. She couldn't press that button. So there was a, a, a few meetings and discussions about how can we, you know, obviously it's a, it's a safety issue. Like we, we weren't allowed to have a patient there that couldn't activate this yeah. nurse call function. So we were discussing what to do with it. And I ended up working with the guy that, that was from this company that made this device. And it's called Neuronode. And what we ended up doing, and I built this myself. So what he ended up doing was he created a shortcut on her device using Apple shortcuts. It was an iPhone mm -hmm. that she could activate with this Neuronode thing. And it would send an SMS message saying her name, bed three, whatever it was, please help me. And I set up an API with Twilio. So yeah. that was an, a Twilio SMS and that would call, uh, so that obviously had a webhook and it called my API that I built. And then through basically reverse engineering uh, a piece of software from uh, the nurse call system that then integrated into the Cisco phone, I was able to send that TAP telephony protocol, yeah. whatever it is message. So she used her neuro node, used the shortcut, it sent the SMS that came to my API, went to the system and the nurse nurses got the alert yeah. and, and like to be able to build something like that that just had such value and made such a genuine difference mm. is really really what sealed it for me and yeah. i just thought this is just what i want to do so then i left that job and again funny enough similar scenario also something I can't quite call a redundancy because uh, it, it technically wasn't, but there was a, a fair bit of restructuring there mm -hmm. and the role that I had doesn't exist anymore. And I was looking for the next thing and, and I'd been applying for a few similar positions like senior infrastructure or IT department leadership type positions. And I wasn't that into it. I, I mean, I wasn't getting any offers, so, you know, it didn't really matter, yeah. but I wasn't that into it. And, th and then a friend of mine who, you know, he works at SSW now as well, yep. said to me, why don't you just apply at SSW? And uh, actually, let me give you the SSW back. Background. So as you know, I, I like doing mobile dev. Uh, I mm -hmm. do .NET MAUI now. 
for Xamarin. Yep. Um, so uh, outside of work, the, the stuff I'd been doing as a hobby had been been writing mobile apps in, in yeah. Xamarin. Um, and I'd been coming to Xamarin Hack Days at SSW. And uh, and again, it was it was a hobby thing. And, you know, I'd been coming to the meetups at SSW, not just the Xamarin ones, but but for me, again, it was it was just a hobby. And then through talking to the guy that was running this this Xamarin Hack Day, you know, he said to me, "Is this something that you're doing for a career?" And I hadn't really thought about it, and you know, mm. and I said no. Well, you really should think about it because you know you, you you're writing great code and you clearly got good passion for it. And then as someone else who worked at SSW basically asked me the same a similar question. And when I was looking around at these jobs, you know, Luke, who who also knew SSW, he'd been doing some courses there and coming to meetups with me as well. He just said to me one day, "Why don't you apply at SSW?" And I kind of laughed. I thought he was joking. <laughs> and he said, "No, no, seriously, do it." And I thought, "Well, well, why not?" So I applied yeah. and I went through that process mm -hmm. uh, which you know what the the process yeah. is like getting recruited at, at yeah. ssw and yeah i got offered a job and it, and it was financially it was a, a fair bit of a step backwards mm -hmm. so I, I had to discuss that with my partner because you know I'd, I'd never had a professional job as a developer before so yeah. i was starting not as a complete junior because the, the experience that i had had you know as, as a developer even non-professionally was was seen as mm -hmm. valuable the consulting experience and the management experience and the infrastructure experience, I think that was seen as valuable as well. And I think that has helped me be um, quite a good consultant at SSW outside of the, the hands-on coding yeah. side. So I was I was lucky enough not to start right at the bottom, but it was a fair step backwards from, yeah. from where I was. So I had to discuss it with my partner. And fortunately, she was she was very supportive. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, we worked out a budget and worked out that I could do it. So I accepted the position. And, and yeah, that, that was four years ago. And I, wow. I, uh, I rocked up to my coding challenge, which was administered by another guy at SSW. And, and then there was a, a part of it that he asked you to come in and review. And that was the first time I met but you. I don't recall that right I, I we've spoken about this in past and i still don't recall that one but um that was interesting yeah well clearly I, I saw something. yeah well this was a, a particular and um, i probably we probably shouldn't talk too much about the yeah. internal workings of that coding challenge but this was a, a particular uh skill that you had that others didn't necessarily mm -hmm. have yeah. so one of the development frameworks that you know that the others yeah. don't know as well as you so so you were brought in to review what i'd done and i took one look at you and thought Fucking this guy's just gonna he's just gonna annihilate me. Look at him. I thought you looked like an Apple guy, actually. I really? thought you looked like a Disney. Oh, yeah. No, no, I'm yeah, I'm as far away from Apple as I can get. Yeah, yeah. I know. it's funny about how where you get these I don't know where where I got that idea from. But I was really pleasantly surprised because I talked you through my code and you asked me a couple of questions and I answered and you turned around to Wixie and, and you were like, Yeah, that's a really, really great answer and that's a really well researched and very appropriate to the yeah. technology answer. So I was like, wow, because I'd never. This was the first time you used that technology, wasn't it? It was, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that went really well, and and that was basically the end of that coding challenge. And the, the next phase of that recruitment process was the conversation with Adam. Yep. And yeah, and, and as I said, I, I got offered it and 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 Amazing. rocked up to to work there a couple of weeks later, and. That was four years ago and I'm still there. Look, there's a few things I want to just cover off before we move on, but I want to make the point to the listeners. You've just admitted there that you've been coding professionally for four years. Yeah. Right. And as we've discussed in the past, this year you released a book. Yeah. Right. You were yeah. able to get yourself into a good position, into a consulting job writing software professionally without any prior professional experience. And you've gotten yourself into a point where you've been able to write a book about it. Yeah. I think that's amazing. And hats off to you because that's absolutely, I could not do that myself, but I just want people to realize that this is an approachable career path. I really yeah. want people to realize yeah. there's a lot of gatekeeping in our industry, but the story you have just told then where you've gone from basically zero to being an authority on Maui 
to being able to write a book about it just goes to show that if you're dedicated you know you don't need the university degree behind you to get there you don't yeah. need that yeah well thank life. you first of all yeah I agree. And you often, like you said, there is a, a fair bit of gatekeeping and you often see debates about is there value in the uh, in the formal computer science education? You know, mm. are people that don't have that missing out, so on and so forth. And truth be told, there is there is definitely aspects of my own education that I'm missing through being self-taught. Oh, absolutely. And I don't want to jump too far ahead, but there's a lot of, I actually, I haven't spoken to you like in this level of about your background as much, but I realize now why we get along so well. Right. Okay. We, when we get to well, the story, there's going to be a lot of similarities that you're going to find out too. Well, let's let's, let's yeah, do it. Tell, yeah, tell one last thing. One last thing before we do jump on, right? You're talking about your formal studies in science fiction, science writing. Yeah. You mentioned earlier this earlier in the podcast that on Friday you wrote or you published a blog post that I yeah, yeah. I found quite enthralling and it was a really good read, right? And all credit to you. Yes, you've written a book. We keep talking about that or I keep talking about that for you. But your storytelling ability, especially in that post, really, it, it's captivating. And I think that's one thing that you. that I, you know, that, that's drawn me to you. But did you want to cover off anything about that post? I'll touch on it briefly. So I mentioned earlier during my story about my, my best friend, Mike. Um, and his partner, Lisa, the, the ones that um, she's later his wife, actually, the ones that, that pushed me into teaching. Yep. So, so Mike was my, my best friend and I've known him since I was 14 or 15 years old. And sadly, about four and a half years ago, he died yep. very young. Mm. Um, and Friday would have been his 50th birthday. That's hard. That's really, really yeah, hard. Yeah. And his family, his wife, Lisa, and his two sons are not here. They're in the UK. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I would have loved to for us all to have got together and done something special to commemorate mm. the occasion. But I didn't have that opportunity. And I wanted to do something. And that's why I wrote that blog post. I wanted to tell his story or as much of it as, as I could in a, in what was already a long blog post, I guess. And, you know, I, I mentioned, I called the, the blog post Remembering Mike. And I, I said this in the post, but the, the reason that, that I wrote it was because I do want to remember him and I, you know, one day those memories will fade. I'm sure they're already yeah. fading. I wanted to get them down now and but I want other people to remember him as well. And I've already got some feedback from some of his friends and family that have yeah. read it and, and thanked me for it. Uh, you know, a few of them have said that they felt I really summed him up well and, and they really appreciated that. So, so that's good. But I also, you know, I'm really, really grateful to you, Liam, for reading it because I want people that, that have never met him to to sort of know him as well. And that's that's why I wrote it. Mm. No, it was and it I think really great. It's it kept me going through. Like you said, it, it's not a short post. It is long, but you don't notice it because you are such a good storyteller. Thank you. Thank you. I, I think maybe part of that is is that drive for really yeah. wanting to tell that story. Yeah, it definitely, definitely helps, doesn't it? Yeah. All right. So speaking of storytelling. My turn. Let's hear yours. <laughs> okay, look. <laughs> Mine's a bit different, a little bit different, but there's a lot of similarities, right? I didn't enjoy studying, much like you. Studying was not something that I really liked doing, but for better or worse, I went through to year 12, went through to 18, pretty much all my peers did. It's just was basically the thing to do. Straight from yeah. finishing school, I then, again, all my peers were doing it. It was not, I wouldn't say peer pressure, but it was kind of the thing to do, the done thing. I went straight into university. Yeah. I didn't study comp sci. I didn't study anything related to software. I actually studied uh, electrical engineering. Oh, wow. Yeah. I thought I like electronics. I like the, like from the computer side, I like that electronics side. I, I want to 
sort of figure more out about that kind of stuff and sort of tinkering and playing with the electronics. About two years in, I think two years into my four, five year degree, I realized I wasn't applying myself as much as I should because I didn't enjoy studying. I hated the actual process of studying. Yeah. Um, and I remember I sat down in my advanced maths and physics class. Uh, sorry, in my advanced maths and physics exam. End of semester exam for advanced maths and physics. They're, you know, this, they're getting into the um, sort of the quantum effects when you're dealing with electronic components. Yeah. A lot of the really hard, harder physics stuff. I think I sat down in that exam for about 10 minutes and flicked through the paper, picked up the paper, stood up and walked out of the room and knew at that point that there's absolutely no way I'm finishing that degree. Mm, wow. Yeah. I did go to university. I went to study electrical engineering. I got less than halfway through and I said, no, I can't do it. It's not the right thing. I had to take a step back and think, okay, well, I thought that's what I wanted to do, but it's not. What is it that I really am? Or what do I really enjoy doing? And that's when I realized it was the software side. Yeah. I grew up around computers. You, you mentioned last week that you grew up with the Amiga. We never, never had a console in our house, but we grew up with computers first computer we had was the Commodore 64. Yeah. So I can't even remember how old I was, but you know, I'm talking, I, I do remember work playing around on our old 3862 and at school in primary school, actually writing, um, writing code in QBasic and, and whatnot back then. Yeah. So, you know, I've been doing it for fun. So when I finished school, when I finished or dropped out of uni, I'd realized well, maybe that's what I want to do. So I found a private college and I don't think they're around anymore, but I found a private college that would be the quickest way for me to get um, some form of accreditation and get me a job as soon as I can. So I took on another, I took on this course at this private college. I can't remember now. I think it was a 12 month course. Maybe it was 18 months and it was a self-paced course. So each module, you went at your own pace. There was recommended durations for each module. And argument's sake, it might have been a 12-month course. I think I was done. I finished the course within nine months or so. Right. Because okay. a lot of it was, yeah. my brain was already wired to think like a software developer. So yeah, yeah, a lot of that was just second nature to me. So I just smashed through that course and then started working. Again, I just want to keep reiterating to everyone, like you don't, university degrees are good and they will teach you some things. You don't have to have one to be successful in this career. And I know a lot of people that don't actually have a comp side degree that have made great careers for themselves in this industry not saying that you don't learn anything with those degrees and they're not helpful at all but i think you don't need them is sort of what i want to get out of that i think the message is that there are other pathways absolutely absolutely and you'll by all means it was a tough slog if you don't have the university degree it's hard to get those first couple of jobs and there are so many jobs i never applied for because it always said must have comp sci degree yeah but not every single job says that. Yeah, that's right. right? Yeah. Not every job says that. There are always ways around it. And if you can back yourself, if you believe in yourself and you can back yourself, you can generally find a way through it. <laughs> Interestingly, you mentioned earlier in this podcast, and I've got a note of it underlined, that you found software engineering was a not not a creative pursuit. It's, it's not that that's what I found. It's that that was my assumption. Uh, yes, I was going to say that was your assumption that you thought it was yeah. a, not, not a creative pursuit. And I thought that was that was quite humorous because, you know, at school when I did um, woodworking or art or anything creative, I was absolutely hopeless at it. <laughs> I okay. am not creative at all. I cannot do any of that. But I do recall thinking if I write software, I can create something. Yeah. For me, writing software was my creative outlet. Yeah. So 
I just, I found that interesting. you said no, or you, your assumption was that it was not creative, but I could, back then I thought, no, this is what I can create. I was just going to say, yeah, it, my, my problem was that it took me, what, 15 years or 20 years to yeah. learn that. Yeah. And yeah, so moving on, you know, much like yourself, I went through GFC, just trying to think. One of my first jobs would have been about 2006, 2007. I remember starting out in .NET 2.0 and funnily enough when you asked me or when you said that you thought I was an Apple guy one of my first <laughs> one of my first dev jobs I was working for with a mate of mine um, and he was writing software for the Apple and basically one of my first tasks for him was to convert or rewrite his application for, for a Windows client so write a Windows client for his application and yeah. then that was all in wind forms and it was the old battleship gray but ugly just and he, you know, he coming from the Apple background, he was very, oh no, he was very particular about how things looked and, yeah. and really wanted them to look really schmick. And around this time was when WPF came out. Yeah. So I'm just trying to rack my brain now and that must have been about 2000 and six, 2007 maybe. And then we saw the, the hype around WPF and I'm like, you know, we can do what you're doing in the Mac world. We can now do that for Windows using WPF. Yeah. So I was using that. We were developing that application there. I was doing that whilst that was still in the um, the pre-release stage. And then basically, as I say, the rest is history there. Like it's just continued through throughout my career. Like you, uh, there's been a lot of redundancies in my in my background. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, funnily enough, I had a phone call from a recruiter the, last week just gone who was telling me or was is hiring a WPF role and I right. absolutely loved that technology I thought it was amazing for what you could do um, look if web technology did not make the the leaps and bounds that it has made yeah I would still be doing WPF today I really really enjoyed it actually little little aside there I do recall that one of the reasons why I moved away from WPF was when Google sheets came out so I remember right. looking at it just going hang on if Google, can write a spreadsheet in the browser. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then desktop's dead, right? The bread and butter for desktops would have been Excel. You would never be able to get that in the browser. And the moment I saw yeah. Google being able to do that in the browser, I'm like, okay, I'm not spending any more time developing for desktops. <laughs> yeah. But interestingly, so back to this phone call I had last week, it's a maintenance project on a WPF application. Um, and then he tells me which company it was. I'm like, oh, yeah. And I'm like, I think I can see it, doesn't happen, it doesn't happen to be um, this project that it was that uh, <laughs> that they're doing. And he's like, yeah, it's that project. And I said, well, you know, ten years ago, I looked at I looked on um, through my history and through my CV, and it's yeah, ten years ago I left that role, and that's pretty much around the same time that I noticed that I sort of made that conscious decision to move away from WPF. But it was about ten years ago that we were, that that product was released. You know, your story with um, with that patient that really brings everything together and really makes makes you realize what you've achieved. Yeah. Was when this guy tells me, yeah, this software is it's in play. It's still going. It's mission critical for the organization. They cannot afford to lose it. It is responsible. Yeah. And I can't recall now if it was... 10 or hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue yeah. and you cannot risk losing it. That's amazing. Isn't it? And it's just one of those things that you're sitting there thinking, I played a part in that. Yeah. And just to, just to clarify, because when you, when, where I thought you were going to go with that was you were going to say that the product that they were asking you to do this maintenance on was something that you built, but so it's something you were. No, it is. It, it is. It's something you built. Yeah. 
I built. Um, it was, and I still believe it was one of the most pivotal products that I've built in my career. Yeah. I learned a lot. I matured as a developer a lot. We had an amazing team. I would work with everyone on that team again tomorrow if I could. Yeah. And some of them I actually went on to another role working with them. But yeah, it's it's been a whirlwind. Um, you and I, well, I was at SSW then for a couple of, for about a year or so before you came on board. And then now these days, as sort of I've, I've mentioned a couple of times in the past, I'm at a point now where I've done, and I, I always watch how I say this, I've achieved everything I would like to achieve from my software career. Right, okay. I don't say, I don't believe that I'm the best software developer out there. I don't believe that I've built the best, the biggest and greatest and done the best of everything, but I am quite happy with where I've, where I'm at in my software career. That's fantastic. So in that, with that in mind, I was, I've always been struggling to figure out what that next step is and what, what, what comes after that, which is why this year I, um, I launched my own consultancy. Yeah. Day to day, I'm still finding that I'm still writing software. I'm still doing all that. I'm doing the business development. So there's there's a lot going on there, but it's that's where we're at. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's dream come true, isn't it? You know, running your own, doing your own thing, running your own thing. They're different challenges. Yeah. Absolutely, 100% different challenges now. And I'm looking forward to the to what these are. Yeah. Actually, that reminds me too. Now, editing last week's podcast. When towards the end, we were tailing off at the end there and you mentioned something about your health. Yeah. I sound, for lack of a better term, I sound like a bit of a dick there and I need to apologize because I was laughing when you were talking about when it came up that you were overweight. I don't even remember. No, when I was editing it, I'm like, hang on, hang on. I'm not laughing. And I honestly, I, I must apologize. I'm not laughing at you and I'm not laughing that I think that you're overweight. <laughs> I really want to make sure that's clear. Right. I didn't even think I can't know exactly what the context was, but I was more just laughing at the irony because obviously people can't see, people don't know you. And I was more laughing at the fact that I know you and I would never consider you overweight mm. or obese, sorry, was the term you used. And that's what I found humorous. Yeah. Yeah. I did not, I was not laughing at the fact that I think you are obese. It's more, I was laughing at the fact that. I can't believe that someone could label you as being obese. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was a bit of a shocker for me as well. <laughs> um, but but as as I said at the time, you know that like the 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 Dexa scan was worth its weight in, in gold, frankly. Yeah. And um, because it Absolutely. really helped me understand that more. But we, yeah, we'll talk about that another time. Before we get too far down the um down the garden path, now talking about health, right? Yeah. One of the last things I want to touch on here is I vividly recall. Well, what I would claim is the first time I ever met you, but apparently it's the second time I ever met you. Yeah. Uh, walking into the office there at um, Neutral Bay, and I saw a tattoo on your, is it your leg? Left arm. Or your arm. Your left arm. I saw that tattoo on your left arm. For those that obviously don't know you, the tattoo is the Iron Man tattoo. Not the superhero. And one of the first things that I... Sorry? Not the superhero. <laughs> no, not the superhero. The the um like the, the super mar uh, the super triathlon basically. Yeah. And I, I remember the first things I said to you is, look, I've got all the respect in the world for someone that can put that tattoo on their body because obviously it's not a tattoo you're going to put on your body unless you have completed an Iron Man. Yeah. And you know I just want you might not like talking about it or you might not like bringing that back up, but I think it's there's certain things that we do in life 
that are a challenge, they are tough, they are very hard. And an Ironman is one of those things that's, now bear with me, is that that's a full marathon, oh, sorry, it's a one and a half K swim, followed by a 120K bike ride, followed by a marathon, is that right? Almost. 3.8K swim, followed by a 190-kilometer bike ride, followed by a full marathon. And to be able to achieve that says a lot about the kind of person you are, right? It shows the dedication. It shows that you're willing to put yourself through so much and you can push push through all that pain and suffering and still get to the other side and be proud enough to be able to wear that tattoo. So... I just wanted to, yeah, I just wanted to highlight that fact. And myself, I, you know, as you know, I do a lot of um, endurance events myself, yeah. but that's more for the trail running. That's absolute. You'll never catch me swimming three, 3.5K. You'll never catch me swimming 350 metres. I hate the swimming. <laughs> well, you'll, you'll never catch me running 50 kilometres, so. Well, that's it. Exactly. Well, you've done, but see, so you've done that part. You've done forty two. No, I've never, I've never done an ultra marathon. No, but you've done, you've done forty two. So you're, you're close. I have, but also never trail running. True. So I, the closest I've come is I've done the the Oxfam one hundred. In fact, I've done about two thirds of the Oxfam one hundred. Yeah. Um, I had to quit because I was starting to injure my ankle, and and this was coming up to the Ironman, so I, I didn't want to yeah. make that worse. Um, but, but yeah, that that experience completely put me off the concept of trail running. I've got a heck of a lot of respect for someone that can take themselves out there and do that. And you've done it in some pretty extreme conditions as well, haven't you? Like some pretty much pretty much any kind of weather condition, horrific torrential downpour, blazing heat. You've, yes. you've been out there and done it, right? Yeah, I mean, I've so a bit of a bit of background there, and I only I laugh because it's it shows where I've come from too. When my my wife now and I started dating God, many years ago now, I was unhealthy, overweight. Maybe I don't know if I was would have been technically obese, quite possibly lazy. We went for a bushwalk with her parents. So down our way, I'm sort of based down south of Sydney. There's a there's quite a popular bushwalk that goes from Otford to Bundina, and it's a 30k bushwalk along the the coast in the Royal National Park. It's an amazing walk. And we did that walk with her parents. A lot of people will do it overnight, so they'll camp halfway. Right. Her dad was also a trail runner, um, and he just loves walking. So we did it in a day. We did it in, I can't remember now, it must have been about seven or eight hours. You get to the end. Then from Bundina back to Cronulla, you can catch a ferry to get to the train station. Right. Right. And so you kept, we caught the ferry uh, after the... Um, the, this long walk we caught the ferry it's a half hour on the little ferry and then where we were living at the time was about 500 meters away from where that ferry stopped yeah i couldn't make that final walk i had to we had to <laughs> call get a call from my parents to pick us up from the ferry station to drop us home because yeah. i could not walk my legs were locked solid that's how unfit i was right i have now, quite a difference absolutely i have now done that run i've done that as a run and they do it annually every year i've done it about eight times and i can do that in under three hours now wow right so that's well wow. what's what's the what's the distance 30k Far 30k wow. yeah um and it's about 700 elevation i think 700 meters elevation and you know that's not trying to to make myself sound good or anything, but it's just to show where we've come from. And yeah, I think I said to you the other night when we went for your book launch, right? 
there's certain things you do in life that once it's done, people can, cannot take that away from you. Mm. You writing that book, yeah. you finishing the Iron Man are two things that cannot be taken away from you. Yeah. And every time I do an event, I always think that. So these days, you know, I've got the next major event that I've got coming up next year is the UTA 100 in yeah. May. In May next year, so training will start for that in the next couple of weeks, and that'll be the second time I've done 100 k's, <laughs> a lot further than the 30 k that we were talking about just before. Wow. But every time I finish these things, it's one of those things that you think, well, there's one more that nobody, no matter what, yeah, can take it away. From that's me. right. Yeah. Wow, 100 k's. Yeah, yeah. That's I when I did that, I did that for the first time last year, and that was just under 14 hours. Wow. Yeah, so that's that's less yeah. time than it took it's, me it's to do big, the Iron Man. <laughs> do, do, do you see yourself doing something like Costa Kosciuszko one day? <sighs> Look, I've trail runners are a, we're a weird breed of people. I've spoken to some people in the past, and you know, on to, above the hundred k's, the next level generally is what it's the hundred yeah. miles, so one hundred and sixty k. I don't know if I'll do that, but I do know that if I am going to do one, it'll have to be next year because I don't know how many more ultras I've got left in me. So if I'm training up for 100, then training for the extra 160, it's probably now's the time well, to do it. Well, you never know. We'll I mean, I've been out in these events, uh, you know, when I when I was, when I I was did the Ironman, there were 80-year-olds on the course with me. Oh, absolutely. I've seen trail running is one of those things, and even ocean swimming. My wife does a lot of ocean swimming, and I've seen it too. It's... One of those things where age yep. has no is absolutely yep. no barrier, and there are some people out there that don't appear to be as fit as yep. they should be, and yet they're still out there, and they'll yep. still get there, and they'll still get to yeah. the finish. And I always say it's it's all in the head. It is right. It is yeah. And also, appearances can be deceiving, and if you're if you're not at a professional competitive level, fitness is related to how you train, and fatness is related to how you eat. And, you know, I've seen a lot of people doing, yeah. you know, these kind of events that you would look at in the street and never for one second think that they're an ultra runner or, or an Ironman. And they do it because, you mm -hmm. know, there's they can. But, you know, age as well, like you said, age is, is not necessarily a barrier. I mean, no. you know, you well, I, I, what I was going to say is when you're doing an, an ultra endurance event like that, you're competing against yourself. You're, you're, the challenge is that psychological mental challenge to push yourself to complete it. And you're not, you know, you're not necessarily Absolutely. trying to, you know, beat the record time or anything. But with that said, sometimes oh. you see people that look like they're 60, 70, 80 years old. And I, I tell you what, they're lapping me. Oh, 100%. And it's funny you say that because my kids are quite young and very competitive. <laughs> yeah. And it blew their minds when I had to explain to them that, no, daddy doesn't run these races yeah. to win. Yeah. Daddy, run, daddy runs these races just because it's a challenge for him yeah. to do. Yeah. And getting to the finish line yeah. is a challenge. That's uh, really fascinating hearing all that, Liam. And it, it, it's funny what you're saying about how the, the similarities, it's almost like our two stories are basically built from the same building blocks, just shuffled around a bit. I, absolutely, I think so. Look, I'd love to keep talking about all this, but I think we're starting to, to go a bit over time. I think so too. And that is it for this episode of the Beer Driven Devs. I'm Matt Goldman. And I'm Liam Elliott. Cheers. Cheers. The Beer Driven Devs podcast is recorded and produced on Dharawal and Darkinjung land. 